And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 42 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Tuesday, September 2nd, 2014, day after Labor Day here in the United States. So are things not what they appear? Are you upset this week that learning that Hello Kitty isn't actually a cat? That you didn't get invited to Brand and Angelina's wedding? Or that you're not among the celebrities that had naked pictures hacked out of their iCloud account? Well, we have a support group for you. It's called PNR's This Old Marketing Promise Keepers. You give us a review on iTunes and let us know how you feel, and we promise to never tell you that Joe doesn't really like orange, that Robert doesn't prefer red wine, and that PNR won't be coming out some week. You'll always be able to count on us and subscribe and count on our promise of content marketing goodness arriving to you via iTunes or Stitcher. And as always and forever, stop on by the blog post on Saturdays at thisoldmarketing.com where you'll find all the links to the news and everything we talk about here. All right, enough of that public service announcement. As always, it's time to welcome my colleague, my co-host, and good, good friend coming from Cleveland, Ohio, with one week to go before Content Marketing World. Please welcome the union boss of Content Marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Have a good I, Labor Day. I did. I love the promise keepers thing. You always have me cracking up on those <laughs> openings. Yes, I, I did. We did actually have to work a little bit yesterday, uh, so couldn't take the day off. But I saw that you you had some uh, some beach time, I think, or you were out on the water. I had bit. to. I had to. I have been up to my neck in PowerPoint slides for the wonderful workshop uh, that I'm going to be teaching at Content Marketing World, plus the keynote, plus the uh, intensive session. So I have a lot of slides. I have literally been buried in PowerPoint and I just had to step away yesterday and get out and look at some water and some dolphins and eat a hot dog and all that stuff. Yeah. You're going to need it because we loaded you up next (laughs) week for sure. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm so looking forward to it. It's going to be, yeah. I mean, we just had our team meeting and the whole thing, everybody's rolling and, uh, it should be, it should be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. And of course, we get to hang out a little bit, and we have our team meeting afterward. And I actually had to ask uh, one of the people that sets up the meetings for us. I said, "Is there going to be alcohol at that meeting? Because I'm sure after four <laughs> days, five days of this, we're going to need it." So, well, that is the top story this week. I mean, there is a one. I I, I saw you tweeted this and put it on Facebook. Twenty five hundred people are coming to Cleveland. And that came from all kinds of publications in the Cleveland area, the the newspaper there, and on Cleveland.com, and you're interviewed, and it's, I mean, it's, this is big, this is big doings for Cleveland. It was nice, actually, the the great folks, Janet, Joe, and and the and Tom Flatting, and the great folks at the Plain Dealer, which is Cleveland's newspaper, and of course, it's Cleveland.com, called up, did a nice interview, uh, there's a couple of nice images that they put online about it, but... I didn't realize this as we were doing the research. Content Marketing World is responsible for 5% of all group sales in Cleveland, Ohio uh, for wow. hotel rooms in 2014. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you, you may think 5% is small, but man, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's over 4,000 hotel rooms we have booked for the week, which is kind of incredible to see this thing starting from well when you consider it's over you know basically three days i mean that's i mean that's amazing right i mean it's five percent of the hotel occupancy over three days that's and it was it's something because we're average actually a lot of people are complaining now because they can't get a room you can't get a room in downtown cleveland right now what's the funniest thing is we're seeing people on twitter because kathy mcphillips our marketing person is is of course she's She's listening to all the activity that goes on. And there are people that aren't even coming to the event just saying, what the heck is happening in Cleveland next week? I can't get a hotel room. But, of course, that makes me laugh. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, we're – I mean, I can't believe it. I'm going to start my – so I have the opening. You know, you have the mini keynote day two. I have the mini keynote opener. And my opener, I'm going to talk a little bit about – how content marketing world grew from we had this vision of getting 100 people to come to Cleveland and 600 plus showed up and now 25. It's just hard to believe that we've done it and uh, it's been a total team effort. It's been great to see this. So it's been uh, it, and it's been unbelievable to experience. I mean, from my point of view, I mean, I've obviously been to all of them and and just watching this thing grow and grow and grow. It's just amazing to see the growth over the last few years. And, you know, I mean, the adventure of being in Cleveland and then moving the one year to Columbus and now back in Cleveland, it's, it's, 
I mean, just and the level of, you know, I mean, everybody from, you know, I mean, we got Kevin Spacey this year. Uh, it's just it, it. It's it's you know it's it's quite well. Amazing. You'll appreciate these stats. So two stats. I, I mean, I think we should cover the news, but it just is interesting for the content marketing industry. This, this is, is news. news. Um, it's the biggest the, content marketing news this week for the, sure. The we have thirty six right now. Thirty six of the Fortune one hundred represented that are coming to content marketing world, which I think is really it's amazing cool because that's our target, right? We're targeting large enterprises, yep. so. It's great to see that happening. And then there's a slide that I put together uh, talking about the groups. And there are 33 companies that are sending at least seven people. Wow. Man, I just love this slide. I showed it to the team this morning. And I'm just like, look at these brands. And I'm not going to you know, throw them all out there because I don't know how many people want to know that they're sending 15 (laughs) people to the event. Right. But They had their expenses covered. And now – Accounting comes down and goes, hey, what, we just heard. What's going on with this thing in Cleveland of all places? But, yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, it's fairly exciting, and we are totally geared up for it. And, of course, you know me. I'm This is this is all we talk about all year long. We're already planning for next year's. But let's let's get through this year's, and we'll, we'll rock Absolutely. it out. And then we'll uh, – Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be fun. And looking forward to seeing you next week. And we're going to do our – well, it's we should probably mention podcast next week. We'll be live. Podcast next week is live. live. Content Marketing World. Uh, we'll be doing it Sunday night at a at a new bar that's right next to the new brand new Weston. Perfectly appropriate <laughs> course, setting the, for There's us. a brand new Weston that opened up, which is just catty corner from the convention center where Content Marketing World is at. And we're at Urban Farmer, which is this awesome place right next door. And, uh, and we're going to be setting up camp there. We've got a an announcement or two that's going to happen there. We've got some friends that are joining us, so it should be a lot of fun. So make sure everybody tunes in next week for that. It will be fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Well, shall we to the news then? Let's do it. Okay. Well, our second story, because of course the first story was uh, the giant news of content marketing world coming up next week. Uh, our second story is about Google authorship. Uh, this, As soon as I read the headline here, I thought immediately of The Princess Bride, where, you know, Google authorship is now, it's not even mostly dead. It's, it's dead, dead. It's it's all dead, right? You know, as Billy Crystal might say, all you can really do is check the pockets for loose change. It's, you know, the what has happened, and there's a great article. This article comes from Search Engine Land, and of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, but it talks about how it's the end of the authorship. Google authorship is gone. Basically, after they reduced two things which were one the rich snippets as they call them basically with a uh you know the the picture that you had next to an author in the search results uh using the author uh tag that you would put into your blog well the google's web spam had matt cuts basically promised that they were going to reduce this to zero and they made good on that promise and now they have basically just said yeah it's all gone now it's all gone what did, what did you think about well this? it's more and more, we talked about this before, the amount of revenue that is wasted on the decisions Google makes. And, you you know, even our company included. I mean, how much did we spend to make sure that are we tagged properly for authorship? Let's get somebody on it, all this kind of stuff. And then here's just another thing that they're, they're killing. And But the one thing that I thought, and I guess I wanted to get your take on it, I still believe and the the article talks about the fact that it wasn't performing well. Basically, the idea that the companies that were using it, which weren't wasn't fifty percent of the companies that they looked at or the sites that Search Engine Land looked at, were not using authorship of any kind. But the ones that were then using it were doing it and tagging it incorrectly, anyways. I still believe that even though Google says that it wasn't that more people weren't clicking on it necessarily. I think that because of the image that was there next to the author, I think that took away some of their revenue from people actually looking at the ads. And I think that that's ultimately a problem. So my big conspiracy theory as part of this is was Google authorship actually working because it took some of the focus off of the ads? Do you buy into that at all? Or am I just barking up the wrong tree? I think there's something to that. I mean, I, I certainly don't. It's one of those things where I think they, I don't know that they went, you know, again, wrapping their hands around like a giant villain and said, let's kill off author, the author feature because it's, it's eating into revenue. But I think Google has a general practice of optimizing ad click throughs. I mean, there's a, there's an obvious reason for that. And so anything that really starts to take away from that or, 
quite frankly, resemble an ad, which you can argue that the the picture in front of uh, an author uh, or a paid, you know, was more attractive, right? So therefore might garner more clicks um, would would affect that. And I guarantee you they tested it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they tested it. Now, whether that was their primary motivation or not, I think you might, you might argue that that's, that might be a little bit, you know, a stretch of conspiracy. But, you know, I... I, I certainly wouldn't put it past them. I mean, you know, they. I think more likely it's that they that they saw that there it was really only the inside baseball people that were doing this, and so it's ostensibly a way to game the system. Well, and of course, Google Plus and everything about it is just coming tumbling down. So one of my predictions is is completely yes, wrong because right. I th- I thought that there would be as Facebook continued to mess with their algorithms. There'd be an opportunity for Google Plus, and then as we talked about a couple months ago on this show, Google Plus completely reorganized. All the leadership is gone, and I don't even know what Google Plus is going to be anymore. I don't even think they know what Google Plus is going to be, but part of this thing was that Google Plus was linked to this whole authorship thing, so it made people make sure, hey, make sure your profile and your author stuff is good in Google Plus. Go in there. Put that you're an author in these um, on these sites and whatever, and I did the same thing. We All of our authors did the same thing. And now here we yes. are. I mean, I think this is a, this is definitely a sign that Google Plus is yet again taking you know a a a, a you know a, a fade out to black. Is there anything uh, to learn from this that that marketers listening to this should learn? I mean, is it the well? Certainly, it's you know it's it's think twice. You know this the. I'm surprised some SEO. I mean, you know, look, I'm a sucker for a good headline, and, and I'm surprised I haven't seen the the headline. You know, death by a thousand cuts. Uh, <laughs> That's to good. Mad cuts, right? Yeah. So, um, but I, you know, it, it strikes me that that this SEO work is just really getting quite difficult if not impossible because the you said it well right the amount of money that's getting spent on optimizing content for search is you know is huge at least here in the states i mean one of the it's interesting one of the things that i've i've said many times um especially in, as we travel asia and australia is how much they've been able to avoid some of this um, by sort of you know the 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 level of you know you can you can argue that they that those markets might be a little bit behind in terms of what they're doing from content marketing perspective, but in many ways they've been able to avoid some of this you know noise and confusion and chaos of the SEO stuff that that the U.S. has been going through from you know two thousand eight ish seven ish through literally you know. A couple, you know, a, a year ago, or even now, to some extent, and they avoided that sort of be noisy. We have to publish ten blog posts a day. We've got to optimize every blog title against SEO keywords and have four percent keyword density on this thing and that thing and this other thing, and and really point to you know this idea of being so noisy that you just rank high for the search engine to gather some sort of attention. A lot of those markets have now avoided that, and I think. What's really coming to play here is is that search engines, generally speaking, are really in a world of hurt, right, for providing access to value. They're becoming just the way you answer a question, uh, you know, and how to get to the, the first part of a journey. They're not even getting to a, you know, in other words, when I do a search now, it's, it's just a starting point. And then I start using that to drive through social and rankings and really f- start to filter down into content using other. No, tools. that's so true. Actually, the, you know, we ran into that problem recently where, you know, we don't produce content like a BuzzFeed does, but we produce one co- piece of new content per day. But our biggest problem with search was actually that our articles were competing against each other. For keywords. Right. That was the big thing. And and actually, that really opened my eyes because as we look at, and I think I've talked about it on the show before, we look at a rolling list of 50 keywords every month and depending on how important certain things are. And of course, things like native advertising joined the list a couple months ago and and that type of stuff. But we realized that the biggest uh, impediment for us getting found in a lot of cases or moving up was that (laughs) we had three or four or five posts that were actually being listed for the same keywords way, way down the list. So we had to fix some things, and that's why I do, I mean, absolutely need somebody looking at those things. But I think in a lot of cases, it's the basic building blocks that you need, and you just can't chase after it. And I think a lot of people, when they heard this authorship thing was a real thing, even though I think that Google marketed it horribly, um, 
they just went after it. Well, right. I mean, I mean, got to fix it. Well, you said it. You said it when they said, you know, basically the Google comes out and says that nobody's using it right. Well, I mean, come on, right? I mean, don't just throw it over the wall. You know, I mean, so many times with Google, what happens is is that this new thing comes out and they kind of leave it to the, you know, it the interpretation of what it is comes down to quite frankly, those that are inside baseball and SEO and search and sort of say, this is what this means. I mean, Google could have come out and said initially, this is what this means. And this is why we're getting behind this. And this is why this is going to be a big thing. They didn't. They just kind of did it. They threw it out there and let everybody else sort of interpret the importance of this, wrap their heads around the idea that the more authorship and, you know, and 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 distinct authorship we have on our blogs and on our content, that means good things for search. Therefore, we should spend money doing this, and everybody sort of runs down that rat hole and then when Google goes, "Eh, never mind, you know that thing we talked about, never mind that." We, we it's it's, you know, you lose the you lose the importance of everything. You know, how long is it before Google basically becomes sort of the company that cried wolf on the, on this stuff, and we just stop listening? I don't know. I mean, they've done it a lot. I mean, even there's a link in the article to the fact of how many things they've killed, which is a lot yeah. of them. I mean, but it actually, type into search, is Google author rank or authorship real? You'll find thousands of posts that people say, oh, I yeah. don't know. Well, that's what I mean. We're always trying to guess. And I guess it just right. comes back to the basics, you know, create qu- consistent, quality, truly valuable content. Just make sure you've got your te- your meta tags correct. You've got your title that makes sense to a human being. And I think you're, you're probably good to go for the most part. And then just tweak it from there. So exactly. Exactly. Anyways. Yes. Well, all right. Enough about Google. Um, authorship is dead. Speaking of something that's come back to life, however... Our next story is a really interesting one that comes to us from Digiday. Uh, And the title of the article is How the Washington Post Has Changed Under Jeff Bezos. Um, Jeff Bezos, uh, for those of you who might not know, is the CEO, of course, and founder of Amazon. And uh, last year? Yeah, it's last year, I guess. Yeah, they just celebrated a year anniversary. Yeah. Bought the Washington Post, which, of course, we talked about here on this show. And, you know, as the article opens up, a year ago, Jeff Bezos stunned the media world with the news that he was buying the Washington Post for $250 million. I don't know how stunning it was, but it was certainly um, not necessarily uh, expected. And the interesting thing was at the time, everybody began to pontificate about, well, what is it that he's actually going to do with it? You know, is he buying it just as an ego thing or is he actually going to try to make a business out of it? Is he going to completely pivot it? And here it is a year later. And I think the jury's probably still out of whether it's going to become a huge success again. But he's made some really interesting changes. And this article goes through a number of those interesting changes that has got new resources, new investment, new hires coming in, and really a renewed energy coming out of the Washington Post that hasn't been seen in a while. And, and I'm wondering, so let me ask you, Mr. Publishing Expert, is this, is this the new model for, for newspapers and publishing and online? I mean, has Bezos found something here, or is this just an experiment in the middle of experimentation? I would probably say it's still an experiment, but from what this article goes through, I think there's some signs that it's working. I mean, if you look into, I love the fact that there's major investment going on in the editorial. They're they're hiring journalists, they are hiring editors, they're hiring people with expertise that are, and they're growing their operation. That just to say that to be the you know the brand of the Washington Post, and they're investing heavily in this, despite the fact that you've got the Buzzfeeds and the Voxes of the world doing their thing. Um, I love that, and it was really funny though, where you talk about. And I think you and I were talking about this before, just about the culture change that seems to be going on there. Right. That they're actually saying, you know, we have a new vision and here's what it is. And we're going to fail. We're going to fail fast. And we're going to invest in what makes the most sense. And they, you know, they lost very high profile um, chief editor, wasn't it? Ezra Klein, wasn't it the chief editor? Yeah, chief that's ed- right. Yeah. Did you absolutely. read any of the comments on this thing? This is hilarious. I mean, they are just laying waste to Ezra Klein in basically because the article says high profile talent like Ezra Klein <laughs> exactly. and everybody's just having a field day with that one. Now, I don't know anything personally about it. I just think that it's funny to go through <laughs> that. No, I mean, if you look at what they're focusing on, they're expanding their editorial. They're really trying to grow their audience. They're growing it in print. 
which is interesting. So print is up 40,000 to 430,000. And they're growing their online audience. That's up 43% to 32 million. It's really become a global brand. They have operations now globally. I think they just hired a sales team in London, I believe it is. Uh, They're investing in all kinds of technology, which makes sense, you know, being that it's Jeff Bezos. And of course, um, you know, ding, 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 they're getting into the native, native advertising realm, which is a big deal, which they have a brand connect is what they call their program. Which really right. seems to be working well for them, although I always have a hard time with the with the really well known brands, uh, historic brands like the New York Times and the Washington Post getting into that. But that was another episode. So I mean, I, I think they seem to be doing the right things, and I think that that you can be successful in the content business if you invest and if you move fast. And I think what before they well, that- weren't moving fast enough. Maybe that was the. I think I think that's the real key here, and this is the takeaway for me for Brandt. They're doing something, right? They're doing something. They're changing. They're actually investing in and innovating, and to your point, failing fast. And they're actually working on stuff. And that's you know, this is all an exploration at the moment. And so, the whether they actually execute their way out of this is is you know, or whether the disruption happens to them as it's happening across every large branded news outlet, I think is TBD, but certainly it strikes me that they're doing interesting things that are moving the business forward. And if anybody, if I had to put my bet on anybody, I would put my bet on them because of the, because they're at least trying things. They're not just going, you know what, let's, Native advertising is but one thing that they're doing, right? It's not that they're throwing all of their eggs into the, you know, like, here's this new thing to go sell. Go sell against that, against our traditional business model. He's changing the business model there. They're changing the technology that's supporting that business model. They're changing the way that they go to market. They're changing the way that they actually manage their editorial. It's, it's, they're changing. And that's the real, that's, to me, that's the real key. They have one huge advantage that I haven't seen anybody talk about, but, Jeff Bezos doesn't care about profitability. He's he is the the person that looks at long term, more long term than anyone maybe besides Warren Buffett. He looks at the long term. And if you look at Amazon's financials, you'll know that because they don't care about profitability. I think the last quarter right. they had 19 billion dollars in revenue and 19.5 billion dollars in costs or whatever it was, something like right. that. So he's yeah. spending. Well, I so can, the, he I, he I went can. in there and he said Look, we're going to make this thing right, and it's going to cost money to get there, and we're going to invest and get it right. That's, so that's the one thing I get. These people are going to be given time to do this thing right. The second thing that yeah. I think is critical is their growing audience. And right now they yeah. – well, well, they're growing yeah, audience, exactly. but right – That's the number one metric, right? Number one metric, I think, in this case – and here's what's going to happen. Right now they are monetizing this the best they can through a traditional media model. And I think that over the next five to ten years – you will see that the majority of Washington Post revenues will come in through e-commerce. You have the expert in the world, Jeff Bezos, in e-commerce, and he's going to say, look at this amazing audience, and how are we going to monetize that? They're going to buy things directly from us. It, it's it's wow. going to happen. It's right, absolutely going to happen. Right. I mean, there you go. Nah, nah, I like that. That's very interesting. Well, I, I mean, of course, I, I think that that's going to be the – media model of the future because I mean, we've talked about all yeah, along course. publishers yeah. and yeah. non-publisher brands they're doing the same things they just monetize it differently i think that brands have the advantage today because they don't have to monetize by selling advertising or paid content they can monetize it by selling right. stuff it's a lot easier to do it that way actually so jeff Bezos yeah, is going to come in and say oh hey let's do that Makes a lot more sense. Well, that goes right to, yeah. I mean, it goes right to my rave, which we'll get to later, but that's exactly right. I mean, it is, I hadn't even thought about it that way before, but that's a really interesting idea. I mean, here it is. He's the king of e-commerce, and he's going to come in and basically go, you know what? This is just another platform for people to buy that's things. exactly right. You hit it. That is it. That should be yeah. the title. This is the title for our podcast today. It's going to it, Just another it's platform be another, to buy another things. another platform, which, and this is his <laughs> test. Because what That's what is right. he going to do next? He's going to start buying more platforms, which is what all of us need to be doing, buying more platforms yeah. in order to create yep, audiences exactly that right. ultimately will buy things from us. So, 
And what do you need to do? What do you need to do to make that happen? You need a lot of compelling, consistent content that's really, really helpful and entertaining. High level of of editorial, great stories, very useful, informative, educational content. There you go. And we... There should be like an event. There should be like an event that talks you know, about I this kind been of thinking about this strategy. Like... <laughs> it should be. Darn it. Should be an Darn event. It, there's not. Should happen in Cleveland, I think. <laughs> Cleveland would be a good place for this event. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of great brands, uh, this article fascinated me and I I wanted to get your take on this, Joe, because it's just a, a it's a, it's an it's an often talked about uh, concept, um, and I thought this was one of the better articles about it that I've seen. Um, if certainly uh, the, one of the better articles I've seen coming out of the Economist on this. Um, this article does come from the Economist, and the title of the article is "Are Brands the Most Valuable Thing?" Um, and this article makes a, a point that brands are the most valuable assets for many, many companies, um, but yet nobody can really agree on how much. Um, and here's the thing that struck me about this article was as this person goes through, the writer goes through and talks about how brands now account by some estimates, and he uh, references Millward Brown, which is a market research company here, um, 30% of the stock market value of companies in the S&P 500, and makes the example that you know a Ralph Lauren polo is cost more than a regular polo, and a you know Coke without a, a logo is certainly just a, another drink, and goes on to make the, the, the case that the brand is an extremely valuable piece of what they do, um, and, but nobody can really agree on how much. And so that's the real that's the real question. And I think it, brands these days, and as he says at the very end of the article, talks about how uh, you know what the brand really means to people, whether it's a promise or whether it's a actual value that can be placed on something, and goes through the different arguments. T- to me, what this and the reason that I I wanted to talk about it on the show, and the reason that I think it's such an important topic for content marketers, is because so many of us work with organizations where we are not going to get to change the brand. The brand may be a B two B, has been around for a hundred years, and we're not going to get to change it. It may be a brand like Coca Cola, where, quite frankly, as a marketing person, we're never going to get to change anything about the attributes of the product. It's going to be in the same bottle. It's always going to be the same color. It's going to have the same consistency. It's going to have the same ingredients. But what we can change, what we can create, what the value that we can create, are in content brands. And if that's the real value here. That's a really interesting thing for us as marketers to, because to be able to create new content brands that represent the approach can increase the value of the organization. If, you know, if we could create an amazing brand for something that doesn't have an amazing brand, can we increase it by 30%? Can we increase the value by 30% by creating an amazing content brand underneath this? by buying that platform? I think the answer to that is ultimately yes. And then one other thing, and then I want to get your take on this, is he also talks about at the very end how brands can actually start to look at this as part of their profit center, right? As, as, as something on their bottom line, the brand value as part of the bottom, bottom line. I'm not sure that's ever going to be the case, but what I do know is that there are organizations now that are looking at content and how they're actually making money through content brands. Crafts, you know, Food and Family Magazine is a great example of this. What Coca-Cola is planning to do or wants to do with some of its content properties, Red, Red Bull other content properties, Red Bulletin, yeah. yep, exactly, where those are not just making money enough to cover the marketing costs, but actually can become a profit center and how CFOs are going to have to start to deal with some of that. That's a really interesting trend to start to look forward to in the next five years is how can brands start to offer content brands as profit centers that actually further the marketing. I mean, the the aforementioned Washington Post and Amazon, notwithstanding, what if Bezos can make Washington Post a profit center while making it another way to browse for products that you can buy on Amazon? It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. What did you, well, uh, for what did just you make quickly on the profit center insight, which I think is happening, I think what I like about that is that y- you get – you get instantaneous buy-in because you're basically paying for yourself on paper. Right. 
And exactly. we've talked to a lot of uh, enterprise marketers that say just that. They're like, look, it is a little bit more difficult. It's a completely different beast than what they've done in the past, but that they don't have to fight with somebody over resources, that they get to use those resources that they're already bringing in. That's a completely different thing. So I like that from that standpoint, but it's you're right. It's hard to measure the value when it comes to, I mean, I, and I kind of wanted to go back because I'm like, okay, when we talk about brand, what are we really talking about? So just say, okay, what is a brand is how customers perceive you in the marketplace. It That's about your reputation. That comes down to trust. And if I just keep breaking it down, because we don't know, what is it? We don't know if it's 30%. It could be 20%. It could be 10%. All we know is that trust makes a difference. And trust, if people trust us as a brand, that increases our value because they spend more stuff right. with us. They buy our stock. They do whatever they do. And so here's they pay more yeah. for the product as opposed to getting discounted. And here's what I'm here's how do you get people outside of the fact that you have an amazing brand or I'm sorry, amazing product. And you talked about that marketers usually can't fiddle with the product. So we can't do anything there to create a better customer experience around the product. We can do better customer service, but we can't touch the product. How else can we create trust? We can set up a content brand. That's, I mean, we, that's, exactly. so I, I guess my question is, and we can get into the numbers. I don't know if we can make sense of them, but I'm just wondering what else can a marketer do today to develop that trust over a long period of time and grow that and actually grow the value of the organization. It's through consistent content. I mean, unless, is there something else? I mean, you're not going to do it through advertising. Right. Well, you, well, you can, you, you know, can the, cite it, but I don't, I don't think that, I mean, if you're, I mean, why why are the the greatest oldest content marketing examples on the planet around loyalty and retention? Whether that's you know look at John right. Deere's The Furrow Magazine. Why do they have that? Because that's been integral to John Deere growing and creating that consistent communication around the furrow, which has created loyalty and retention and all that amazing stuff. When people look right. at the furrow, they see that wow, that's John Deere. I'm never going to buy anything but a John Deere because look what they've been doing for us for all these years. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think some of that has to do with the, the uh, you know, I think the evolution here as the, as, you know, if you look at sort of the, this is high level evolution of how content marketing has risen up through the loyalty and higher and the higher and higher in the funnel. I think some of that has to do with, you know, because where we started, it was, we had to know our audience in order to be able to distribute the content to that. It was hard to distribute, right? Content was very difficult to distribute. It was hard to do a print magazine. It was difficult. There was special machinery involved. There were special talented people that needed to be involved. And all of that was predicated the need that we needed to make sure that we were going to get this print magazine or this thing into our customers' hands. So therefore, we had to have a known audience to be able to do that. And so what has happened is as, as publishing to the web, digital, the idea of digital content and the sort of omni-channel world that we now live in has become more prevalent, that has enabled companies to really widen out the scope of what, can, what they can consider a known audience. And therefore, it makes, it makes perfect sense to start to assemble a known audience at the very highest level of awareness and lead nurturing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really where we've seen the, the evolution of content marketing sort of expand out to the entirety of the funnel, which is, uh, which is you know, really the opportunity and the reason that we're seeing it grow so quickly, I think, here. Well, the, the, the one thing um, that I'll just say is there's a really interesting chart in here that talks about the top brand values. You know, Millward Brown and Interbrand, Brand Finance, they always, they rated the top brands. Google, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, McDonald's, Coca-Cola are the top six that I'm looking at. I can tell you right, right now that those, and we can, we can talk about their products all day long, but I can tell you what they're doing from a content Standpoint. I mean, Google's Think Magazine, former winner, content marketer, marketing project of the year uh, program, amazing publication to decision makers. Apple, probably the best company that I know to run small events. I mean, they get people in those Apple stores and they teach them and they help them. And it's amazing. And most people don't talk about that. IBM, some of their visual content marketing, uh, their, uh, what is it, the Echo Imagine? No, that's the GE stuff. Yeah. What's the... No, 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 think, um, think, uh, think, think... Uh, Thank you. Planet. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I totally. Yeah. Uh, so IBM's in that. Microsoft, they have, you know, Steve Clayton is their chief story. Smarter, Smarter Planet. Planet. 
Microsoft, they hired Chief uh, Steve Clayton as their chief storyteller just to focus on this kind of thing. Uh, you know, McDonald's is experimenting with all of this stuff. And then Coca-Cola Journey right. might be one of the greatest content brands out there right now and really doing some innovative things. Right. So I think that's what I like when I look at the value. Then you can really say, what are they doing from a content creation and distribution standpoint? And it just so happens that those are the top six. So it's just right. interesting, and it also well, it also uh, if you I, I would I would venture a guess and say that it also has something to do with the fact that they spend a lot of money on marketing. Wow, <laughs> every one of those. I'm trying to make a, a point here, and I'm trying to get rid of everything else so I can make that point. <laughs> I just wanted Thank you to for be bringing me look, back I, to I'm, reality. No, it, it is well. Here's the thing. I mean, it is what is what is what is inherent in everything you just said is that all of those things are infused into what they're doing. Right. So every 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 single thing that you just mentioned, the Apple stores, the smarter planet content, all of those things are infused into everything else they do from an advertising PR and sales enablement perspective. And so the brand itself becomes how do you take all of that different content, different content's purpose. Right. So some of it is to provide for you know sales information some of it is to entertain some of it is to educate some of it is to simply just delight you with an experience that you wouldn't have had otherwise and that's how they differentiate that's what the brand stands for is creating that experience for whatever place you happen to be experiencing that brand and if i'm in the middle of a mall and i see the ibm smarter planet video playing on a wall in the in the mall Okay, maybe that's out of context, but it's it, it's at least giving me an experience that I don't have when I go and shop for web you know WebSphere uh, on a website, and and that is the real key is being able to optimize that content, that experience that I'm having as a consumer in what, wherever yeah, I'm going to have it, point. and that's what those brands really understand about the power of, of a brand of a and and it's so it's their brand as content brand, right? Well, you and I have been in meetings with a lot of people that get paid a lot of money that'll say, hey, look, 1% of our customer's day is spent with our product. How do we get more positive experiences in the other 99% of the day? I mean, that's what they're talking right. about. How do, we, how do we make that 2%? How do we make that 3%? So, and you can't do that through the product. So, I mean, that's, that's right. the thing. You can, exactly your product right. can't accomplish you all this brand right. value. It has to be something else. That's exactly right. That's exactly or you know the the opposite is also true where where you where you talk about a product that doesn't need you know washing machines or something where you're going to buy it and then you're not even going to think about it for 7 years, right? You're just not a you car. just have yeah. no you have no reason to think about it for for a long time. What can you do in the intervening 5 years to keep that person at least attached to your brand approach the reason that you guys are so great so that the next time that they come in seven years there's no reason for them to consider other competitors they must consider and well, you first or, or they or you're the favorite going into on that note i always get um articles sent to me and clips from a friend of mine who loves costco's magazine and always sends me little things on because they right. were talking about actually yeah. what was interesting in the latest costco magazine there was an article on uh content marketing and uh, and Marcus Sheridan's story actually. So Marcus was telling this thing and whatever. And Mark, my friend, sent me a note and said, "Hey, it, you know, I love this magazine, but it didn't mention you guys. Like, there's a problem." But he said there was all these little people on it, and they were all colored blue. And then they pointed at the one, the the orange one that was content marketing. And I said, "That orange must have been you." They didn't say it was Content Marketing Institute, but <laughs> I'm like, I love it. But the fact that this guy digs, you've worked your way into the psyche of designers oh, of print God. pieces. But this guy digs Costco magazine. So, and that's what yeah. we're talking about. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of digging things, we have a lovely, wonderful sponsor to yes, talk about. Yes, we do. Absolutely. And uh, we are so happy to be sponsored this week again by Smartlink. And I want to talk about, they have a great content piece. Talks about your multilingual website really being the gateway for global marketplace. Like if you really want to target globally, you've got to think a little bit differently about it. So if you are trying to truly be multilingual, you can't just be about translated content. It's also got to be about providing visitors with an authentic, transparent user experience. And our friends at Smartling have published a white paper that can answer all your questions on this called Creating an Optimal User Experience for Global Website Visitors. 
If you are at all global in nature as a company, you need to download this paper, read it. It's read really it again. Good. You can download it at bitly.com slash PNR dash global. That's bitly.com slash PNR dash global. Uh, and actually, we've been getting some really great comments on this from our listeners. So thank you for downloading it. Thanks for sending the, the feedback. Thanks to our friends at Smartling. Again, bitly.com slash PNR dash global, all lowercase. Download it now. And thanks again to uh, Smartling for keeping this little ship a sail. We appreciate it. Woo-hoo. There you go. Yes, thank you, Smartling. Yes, it's a it's a wonderful white paper and, and such a, a such an important topic too to be talking about. The glo- I mean, I can I can't tell you how many times when I'm traveling traveling internationally to global brands, they say their biggest challenge right now is how to scale this and and really provide not only just translated content but culturally relevant content, localized content, and you know for for content management types of processes it's 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 there's one kind of challenge but then for content marketing where you know popular culture and localization and what's funny in different countries just comes into play here and it's just such an important topic so i'm so glad to see them as part of absolutely uh, uh, as as part of this okay well now it is time for the part of the show that everybody loves so much it's our rants and rave section where joe and i go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that's giving us a little bit of hate or a little bit of love and since joe has this old marketing this week uh for the second week in a row yay um i'm actually going to start and i'm going to blow everybody's mind right now because i'm actually going to give big kudos i have two raves uh this week and i'm going to give big kudos to a very very smart businesswoman and her name is kim kardashian dun 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 that right yeah absolutely I found this article to be fascinating, and of course, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm finding it even hard to say it as I say it. But here it is: Kim Kardashian, the the she has created a really the new template, I think, for how e-commerce providers. We've talked somewhat on this show. We've I've certainly talked to a lot of people in retail. Um, about their e-commerce strategies and how it pertains to content. And here is a woman who created a game, the Kim Kardashian app, basically, a game where you go and you shop and you and 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 it's an iPhone app and it's uh, on mobile. It's a mobile app game, um, not dissimilar from Candy Crush or anything else that you might download and 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 play on your phone. But this Kim Kardashian game, um, has been downloaded millions and millions and millions of times. And here's the interesting thing. They now estimate that she's going to earn $200 million based on the program's in-app purchases. And so here is a new template for how e-commerce is now happening. And the person helping us pave the way here is Kim Kardashian. So this is is, is not worth – that's a revenue. That's a $200 million. That's a revenue number. Oh, my goodness. That's a revenue revenue number. Um, that now it's a private company, so this is an this is a, an estimation, right? So we don't know exactly what it is, but based on the downloads and the in-app purchases that they're seeing, they're estimated that the that the thing is going to make two hundred million dollars. And the ba- way it works is you download, you can play the game for free, and you can do what you want for free. But as you all know, having downloaded some of these games, there are all kinds of ways to skip to levels and to buy things through uh, the actual in-app uh, purchases where. Basically, some of these people, some of these gamers, they're estimating spend as much as five hundred bucks to buy some of the th- same things that Kim buys, and that is just amazing to me. And it's and you talk about having a content brand that is differentiating. None of the stuff she's buying, I'm sure, isn't available through every other e-commerce platform that you might want to spend money on through the direct website, through Amazon, through all the places where you could go buy this. But why are they buying it through this content? Why are they buying it through this content display? Well, because it's engaging. It's fun. It's interesting. It's differentiating in the way that they're using a content platform to present you with things to buy. This is what Jeff Bezos and and what Joe is talking about with the Washington Post. It's just an amazing example to me of of the future of e-commerce. My second rave... 
And this has really not a lot to do with content marketing per se, as much as it does with perhaps brand um, and perhaps just regular old marketing is an article that comes out of uh, uh, Business Insider, and it talks about Denny's. And I'm a fan of Denny's. I've always been a fan of a good diner, and, and Denny's is certainly no uh, no different. Um, they are selling a they, – they launched this thing where they're selling a $300 breakfast. And they've launched this new 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 York City restaurant. And instead of just launching the New York City – uh, Denny's with, you know, hey, we have a new Denny's and here it is in Midtown or whatever it is. They launched it by saying, here's this new breakfast we're going to launch at this New York location. And it's the very first location in New York. And they're basically selling this $300 breakfast, which includes pancakes and eggs and sausage and bacon and all the stuff that you would normally get. But it also includes a bottle of Dom Perignon. And it, it includes uh, basically all this other fun stuff as an experience of getting this thing. They are now getting people to talk about this where no, I mean, when was the last time Business Insider covered the opening of a new Denny's? Well, they did now because they created this really interesting experience for consumers called the Grand Crew Slam, which basically gets you two eggs, pancake, sausage, bacon, and a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon for your well, it shouldn't. It purposes. shouldn't go without noting that it's a it's a good deal. For like a, a grand slam breakfast and a bottle of Dom for three hundred, it's actually that's a pretty good deal. That's pretty darn good. <laughs> of deal, course, right? what would you expect from Denny's? But we're getting a deal, even though it's three hundred bucks. <laughs> exactly, and the the whole point here is not that they're just doing this as some stunt, which I think is interesting in and of itself. But the interesting thing is, if you then go, if you read further and look, they're actually experimenting a little bit with the format of Denny's in New York. Here, they're actually doing some things like um, interesting cocktails, um, some interesting uh, new meals that will be available that are more expensive and certainly more, you know, more, more sort of culinary, as it were. Um, so they're actually using this as a way to say we want to pull in a different type of clientele. This obviously doesn't. Uh, appeal to a lot of their existing clientele but as a new experience that they're trying to pull in new types of people that may be more likely to be a a new persona that is likely to be in manhattan and be interested in having that quote-unquote denny's late night experience but with a you know dark and stormy cocktail and a you know a set of new chicken quesadilla with you know different types of spices on it this is the kind of thing that they're trying to do. So it's not just willy-nilly as a publicity stunt. It's actually a concerted effort to use this event, this experience, to pull in a new type of persona. And I think it's just genius. You know, I think that they're – I would not be surprised if this becomes like a Denny's XL or a Den, like a sub-brand where they it's more of an upscale, which is weird to say, an upscale Denny's. But look at the, I mean, the pictures in here are pretty, pretty Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's fantastic. But where where people I think would normally say, I'm not going to Denny's, you might say, Hey, I'm going to, that's a, oh no, that's a Denny's XL. We're going to check that out. I mean, it, it looks really interesting. Even if it's just one though. I mean, the, the, the idea of a micro brand here with one restaurant is just such a great idea. I think is it's, it's. To me, it's 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 just a genius experiment, and and I really hope it works for them because I I, I love the idea. That's, I love that example. So my mine, uh, very, you know, very quick. I wanted to get your take on this. I read this article. This is from August twenty eighth in GigaOM Journalism and the Internet. Is it the best of times? No, but it's not the worst of times either. And the author of this article, Matthew Ingram. And is basically coming out to write. There's, and, and we, I think we've covered quite a few hate pieces on the changing uh, nature of journalism and how there's people out there that think that, oh, internet is just journalism is now a hundred times worse than it ever could be and, and is actually combating a couple articles. Uh, one from salon.com and another one David Sessions wrote in Patrol magazine arguing that the current state of journalism is in David's, uh, Terms here is calling it a morose, a, mor- a morass of cynical, unnecessary, mind numbing, time wasting content. <laughs> and then Matthew actually goes through a pretty darn good argument, and this is why I wanted to to give a little bit of kudos to Matthew and and saying, look, yes, is there uh, unnecessary, mind numbing, time wasting content? Yes, but there always has been. 
and he's saying exactly. that what, what David, <laughs> what else yeah, is what, new? What David is calling, like, oh, and I think of course it's almost like that. You know, I used to walk a mile to school uphill and and back uphill again, back home a mile. I mean, it's almost like that. We're thinking about the past, and we just don't think about the way it is or has been. But even if you look at what you would consider amazing journalism, still had classified sections, still had uh, horoscopes, still had comics, still had puff pieces, and goes um, this part that I love that I want to get your take on it because the, the title is The Internet Didn't Invent Clickbait and just talks about all the years where you know New York Times and other papers like it were, were making sensationalistic headlines to sell papers. And so I think that this whole thing that this is a new thing, we just tend to see it more because we're more connected, but this isn't anything new. And then the one thing that I would just say, and, and this is one thing Matthew talks about, I think there is a lot of amazing innovation, like what we just talked about with uh, Washington Post going on right now. And for whatever you think about BuzzFeed and Upworthy, what they're doing is innovative. And it's That's different. Right. And I think that we can learn from it. So I don't think it's all negative. I don't. It's almost like I just like this piece for the fact that he's just calling BS a little bit on it, and I think it needs to be. And and I'm I'm almost getting a little bit tired of some of those people out there saying, oh, just journalism, it's just never going to be the same and whatever. It's like, no, it can be better. I think it can be better. I think that we're just – we're going through this period where there's all kinds of technology. Everybody's a journalist. Everybody can create content and send it out to a – and actually gather an audience. And so – we're working through those issues. I don't know if you had to take on any of that, but I'll mention two things because I loved this article as well. Um, and and you know, I mean, GigaOM is such a great site. And the the interesting thing to me was two things. Was, was one, I loved the part where they went through the uh, you know the the old article from the New York Times about the Telegraph and how the Telegraph was going to ruin oh, journalism. That's the best because, part. I didn't even say that because I love that. Because news would be, you know, news would be happening in minutes instead of days. So, it's, I mean, look which at is yeah, just fantastic super, superficial, to Superficial, sudden, unsifted, yeah. too fast for the exactly. truth. Where we heard that before. I just too fast for the truth was my favorite part of that. It was just so so great. the The second part that I would I would also mention is there's a comment. I think it's the first comment uh, on the post actually that says that talks about TV. And how, you know, basically the comment is, yeah, see, TV is just like this, too. TV is getting worse and worse and worse. And nothing could be further yeah, from correct. the truth. I mean, I live in Hollywood. Trust me, television right now is going through a, a renaissance of unprecedented proportions. Um, the amount of, te- you know, all film actors right now want to be in TV. Uh, Kevin Spacey, by the way, with all due irony here, is, a, is an amazing example of this, right, of where they're creating television series. Now, you get into a really interesting discussion here about what does TV exactly. mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, but that's a whole, we've but talked creating about content before, in right? a different is, way. And the fact that, and Kevin Spacey right. will probably say this at Content Marketing World, but the fact that he has 23 episodes to tell a story. That was that that's was right. that's inviting to him over the constrictions that a two hour film can can have. So that's right. I mean, they said it this week this this week at the Emmy Awards, which was just fantastic. Where the first thing that uh, uh, that Seth Meyers said when he came out was how ironic it is that a broadcast network is actually holding an awards show that's going to give all the awards to the internet and cable. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And. Which is, you know, which is true to some extent, but even broadcast television is starting to get a much higher quality of shows on. They're actually beginning to benefit from some of the the renaissance that's happening on HBO and and on A and E um, and and Bravo and some of the the more interesting cable networks. They're starting to be able to do smaller, uh, you know, sometimes seven episode series. Uh, you know, the FX has, uh, what is it, American Horror Story, which is a really interesting approach to doing episodic television now where the cast stays the same, but the the entirety of the, the situation changes from season to season. Just a really interesting time, I think, in episodic television or episodic content, which is then distributed in a number of ways. Over the air is one, through cable is another, over the internet cable is another and really, I think what the disruptive thing that's happening, and I think it's actually getting better, 
is that by having more distribution methods, it means it can find an audience that's different and find an audience that can sustain it. Where on broadcast TV, if you were relegated to you know Monday nights at 11 p.m. or Monday nights at 9 p.m., you might never be found. And great shows died. And great shows now have such a better chance for living in – uh, and sustaining themselves on different mediums, and that's I think that's the well, role. That's the House real of Cards is a great example of this yeah. because of the fact that nobody wanted to take. Uh, everybody said that to take House of Cards, you had to do a pilot. Netflix was the only one that said, "Come on in. You don't have to do a pilot. We we looked at the data. Data makes sense. Come on in and do right. it." So. Well, look at Louis. Look at Louis. I mean, he tells the amazing story of how he went in and basically went, "Yeah, I'll do a TV show, but here's the way it's got to work." And they went, "Okay." You can do that. Here's a couple hundred thousand dollars per episode. Go make it work. And he did his first where he shot it and his friend edited it and he had friends come in and act in it. And he basically, as he says, which I think is just wonderful in this interview where he says, they said, well, how did you get budget for? He said, they just wired money into my bank account and I just wrote checks and put it on my credit card every week. And, And then we just built a TV show around that. And that's where we are these days. And, and, and the quality is going up. The, Quantity is also going up, and it's and the number of channels we can actually consume it on is obviously going up as well. And so I think it's never been a more opportune time for great content to become really great. Amen. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Hey, hey this old hey, marketing. It's me. Well, I, I was I it's was you. almost going to take a break. I know. I we we, we yeah we turned that yeah no we turned that around. I did it. You wrong. know, I, that was I wanted to bring up. This one, and I think you and I have talked about this before, uh, Robert, marketminder.com. Marketminder.com is the content brand for Fisher Investments. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up specifically is the fact that one of my friends who I've known for quite a long time actually purchased Fisher Investments services because of the fact of two things. Uh, Read Ken Fisher's book, and Ken Ken Fisher, who's the CEO of Fisher Investments, you know he's he's a Forbes.com uh, contributor, one of the real ones, by the way, not a fake Forbes.com contributor, one of the real ones, <laughs> which I don't know what means something or not anymore. But he was an original Forbes contributor and was building that brand there. Started to launch a series of books. I've read a couple of his books. He's got really amazing insight into I think the way global currencies work and whatnot. If you want to get bored with that stuff, but then they launched this site MarketMinder.com and they basically create commentary on what's going on around the world so that you can make sense of it for your investments. It's really simple to read stuff. It doesn't go too deep into the into the forest, but it'll say, hey, here's how you need to make sense and here's how you should adjust your investments based on that. And they also send out a quarterly report to all the people that invest with them that is really, really good stuff that says, here's what you have to know right now and here's what you need to be doing. And that's over and above when they're getting uh, you know, the people that work for them and their consultants to talk to for one-on-one advice. But I love this event because I know somebody that bought their services specifically because they relied on MarketMinder all the time. And when they got a portfolio large enough to afford Fisher Investment Services, that's who he called. So I just thought that was interesting that here's here's a Fantastic. case that I know of personally that yeah, yeah. worked. Um, you know, he signed up to the email, so he subscribed to the email. They had the audience, worked over. I don't know what kind of lead nurturing system they have, but he was relying on this and, and of course, uh, it became a customer. So marketminder.com, Fisher Investments is the company. I actually talk about them in Epic Content Marketing. Uh, really, really interesting case study, and that's our This Old Marketing Example of the Week. Fantastic. Well, I, I was. This is normally the part where I'd say, "Where are you going to be next week?" But uh, I think we we both yes. know the answer to that uh, one. Yeah, over the weekend, we'll. Already, I mean, we're already starting set up uh, over the weekend. We'll heavy duty set up, uh, and then you get in Sunday, I believe. I'll be there I get in Sunday, Friday. Yeah. Well, I fly tomorrow. I'm be in New York for the rest of the week working with a client, and then I fly on uh, Sunday morning. There you go. So I'll look forward to seeing you. And I know we've got a couple of interviews and stuff Sunday during the day, but then we've got the podcast at night. So, and then uh, we do indeed. I'll either be in a great mood or a bad mood, depending on how my, let's hope we see a Cowboys Browns victory day on Sunday. And then of course uh, our good friend, Joe Kalinowski will not be in a good mood because he's a Steelers fan. And I really, you know, this is how Browns, if you listen to to radio, Sports Talk Radio. All they'll say is, "Look, the Browns can go one and fifteen this year, but they need to win this game." 
because it's against the Steelers. That's right. So, or maybe two and That's fourteen, right. two against the Steelers, <laughs> and they'll be happy. This is like their Super Bowl. So that in the draft. There it is. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see. Maybe. Well, maybe we'll see a little Johnny football too. There All you right. Go. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And tweet us up, won't you? Hashtag this old marketing. We are getting some amazing suggestions on Twitter from you guys. Examples of this old marketing. Wonderful examples for us to rant and rave about. So keep it coming, folks. It's just awesome. Um, and, you know, if you don't feel like the, the Twitter thing or you don't feel like the LinkedIn thing or you don't feel like the Facebook thing, there's always that old standby email. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com is the address. And if you like this episode, number 42, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or stitcher.com all the links are on the show notes available at thisoldmarketing.com remember everybody it is your story to tell tell it well we'll see you next week live from content marketing world on this old marketing